This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta and welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Matt Brennan, who has just written a great book called Kick It, A Social History of the Drum Kit. This book examines the unique place our instrument holds in not just spanning, but shaping the entire history of modern music as we know it. A lot has been written about the history of the drum set as a physical entity and the styles of drumming that came with its evolution, but this book examines the effects the drum set has had on music from a sociological, geopolitical, and cultural perspective from Congo Square to the big band era to modern day. Matt Brennan started out as a drummer and eventually got more interested in history and musicology. He is professor of popular music at the University of Glasgow in Scotland and has written several other books, including When Genres Collide, which was named one of Pitchfork's favorite music books of 2017. We're doing another giveaway this week. We will put up posts for this episode on Facebook and Instagram as usual. And if you share those posts and tag us, you'll be entered to win a free copy of Kick It. If you want to help support what we do here at Working Drummer Podcast, we invite you to become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive video content from our former guests. We're adding to it regularly, and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. Our newest content is up now. Matt and I recently led a masterclass on a few of the major themes that run through just about all of the interviews we've done, and our Patreon members now have exclusive access to a video of it produced by our good friend Mike Jackson. Once again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. This really helps us cover the expenses associated with producing this podcast, and we greatly appreciate it. Also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and feel free to contact us on those platforms, as well as through our homepage at workingdrummer.net. Lastly, Working Drummer is now available on Spotify, so give us a follow there if Spotify is your listening platform of choice. So this book and this conversation really blew my mind in a number of ways, and the topics we talk about here are just a few of the many previously unexamined concepts and historical facts that have huge implications for how and why the drum set has managed to be such a central force in modern music and culture. I also want to do a little correction in advance here. A few minutes into this conversation, we talk about a reference in the book dealing with Congo Square. I incorrectly placed this in 1886 uh, when it actually refers to a writing from 1809, just to give you an idea of how far some of this history goes back. So let's get to it with Matt Brennan. This is an incredible book. Thank you for sending it to me. Um, I have I've not read all of it. I've been kind of skipping around uh, reading this, that and the other. Um, but, but what I've read has been, uh, you know, illuminating and funny and, and cool. And, uh, I, I don't know that there's, um, ever been a book written. I mean, there's, you know, been tons and tons of literature about the history of the drum set and about the players and so forth. But, um, the, you know, the implications and the reach of it, um, socially and geopolitically, um, and, and culturally have, have really not been explored, um, so what, what led you to this research and, and to want to approach, uh, this instrument from this angle? Well, first of all, thanks so much for saying such nice things about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the book is sort of, it's brand new 
And so I'm, you know, it's now I'm very curious to see what people are, are starting to make of it once they've, once they've read it. And uh, yeah, I'm, what brought me to this topic, I guess, is, well, first of all, I'm a drummer, of course. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's an instrument that, you know, I fell in love with, you know, as far back as primary school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can remember very clearly, maybe like a lot of kids um, growing up in North America, I, I got put into piano lessons at, you know, age seven or eight. Wasn't mm-hmm. completely vibing with those lessons, not having a great time. And right. uh, and then uh, I became very curious almost as soon as I you know learned what a drum kit was <laughs> about right. how do I get to play that thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That looks like way more fun. And uh, so ar- around age nine or ten, I was able to persuade my parents to get me at least a pair of drum sticks. So it started with that. And, and from there, I was Man, really you, you, your opening salvo was like a low bar. You, <laughs> you were like, just get me a <laughs> pair of sticks. <laughs> well, you know, it's a, you know, you know, I, you know, as an adult now, I can kind of see actually like, you know, if you start out asking for a full kit, you know, you, you could be met with some serious resistance from, uh, right. from the parents. So, you know, sticks seemed like, come on, you gotta be, you <laughs> You got to be kind of a jerk to deny a child those, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I started out with that. And I I think like a lot of drummers, you know, uh, once I, you know, had been working away with those for a few months, got my, you know, playing on pillows or pots and pans. We thought, oh, maybe a practice pad and then a snare drum. And then around age 11 or 12, I got, got my first kind of beginner drum kit and started taking lessons. And, you know, again, like probably a lot of, drummers it just became a really fundamental part of my identity you know yeah. uh growing up there was uh i i felt more myself when i was sitting behind a kit than i did you know socializing there at parties or whatever it happened yeah. to be yeah. um so it, it sort of, it runs quite deep within me I have this interest in the instrument but while all that was happening uh i was also very interested in uh reading about all the things you sort of mentioned, history and politics, and and those interests grew as I got older, started going to university. And so I actually, I started um, my university studies in a jazz drumming degree, mm-hmm. but found that I was really craving a sort of more rounded experience, reading other sorts of books, you know, like history of music and society and and, and, and that more academic side of things, but also yeah. just, you know, not necessarily academic, just really interested in, you know, how, how the history of the world unfolds and yeah, <laughs> what yeah. factors are at play. And in particular, like, what's the relationship between those broader, uh, you know, developments in 20th century history and music? I found that so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so eventually I, I gravitated towards postgraduate studies in the sociology of music. And that's what caused me to move from Canada, where I'm from, to Scotland. There was a, a fellow whose books I had read who was a professor uh, in, in Scotland. His name was Simon Frith. And he wrote about things like uh, the, the development of the tension between high and low culture hmm. uh, or, you know, the value judgments that we make about music, how those work and uh you know, all sorts of different things, which I found completely fascinating. And so I I went to study with him 
And this drum book is, is a book I've been working on for a decade, but it's not my first book, actually. My first book was about the history of jazz and rock journalism. And, uh, and that was another thing that, that I found really interested in was the, the relationship between jazz and rock and, and between different genres of popular music. Mm-hmm. And so I was researching that, um, you know, throughout my 20s. And the more I did that, the more I thought, oh, you know what would really be able to tie the story of all sorts of different genres together, like, you know, from like late 19th century up to the present day, you know, jazz, but also swing and rock, funk, soul, you know, hard rock, hip hop, all these things that I loved listening to, you know, you find a lot of different books charting the histories of particular genres. Right. If you start to look at music history through the lens of an instrument, especially the drum kit, yeah. you know, that instrument is present, you know, and actually pivotal in the creation of all of those genres of music. So I thought that's actually what I want to do is not so much write a history of the drum kit, but write a history of music. Yeah. From a drummer, from the drummer's perspective. Right. Which of course, you know, I may not need to convince you is the most important perspective. Well, of course, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) But, but it is surprising, you know, like when we think about other instruments, say the, the electric guitar or the synthesizer that get touted as like these game changing instruments that had huge consequences for the trajectory of music. No one has really made uh, a book length argument about how the drum kit has actually fundamentally changed the shape of music history. Right. And that's what I wanted to look at because I think it's such an easy argument to make. There's so much evidence, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I found it really interesting how you're, you're not only making this argument about the drum set as, as a fundamental driver of music and, and music culture, um, but you're, uh, you're sort of examining it from the standpoint of this um, dichotomy where, you know, unlike uh, the, the guitar, the electric guitar, or the synth or whatever, um, the drum set and drummers... Uh, occupy this space in in musical culture as a sort of pariah <laughs> right yeah um and and you i mean you start the entire book out by talking about drummer jokes and each tr- chapter starts with a drummer joke um and i i just found it really interesting how the book sort of um you know examines this dichotomy of like on the one hand how indispensable the drum set has been to music and on the other hand, how maligned <laughs> the drums and drumming have been by the musical world at large. Um, and and so my, my impression of the book so far is that you're, you're sort of asking three questions. Um, why are the drums and drumming and drummers so mercilessly mocked yeah. <laughs> by the rest of the musical world? Um, why are they so indispensable? to the musical yeah. world and how have these two things managed to coexist for 150 years? <laughs> that's exactly right. Good. Yeah. No, that's a really excellent summary actually. And, you know, I think like yourself, maybe like I am so tired of drummer jokes. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're a part of the culture and I, and I get it. We've got jokes about bass players and jokes about guitarists and, 
and whatever else. But don't leave trombonus out of it. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Every instrument sort of has its own cross to bear. I understand. Right, right. Uh, but I was amazed when I started talking for the first time about researching this book project, just how often my academic peers would come at me with drummer jokes, right. you know, and, uh, and they didn't tend to do that for, you know, the, <laughs> the other book projects that my, that my colleagues were working on. And I thought it, you know, not so much annoying, but just kind of persistent and peculiar. And it really, you know, it made me think on the one hand, I, I could either leave drummer jokes out of the history entirely but the more interesting thing to do, I thought, would be to see, like, how old are they? Like, how long has this been <laughs> happening for? <Right. laughs> and and I think that it sort of speaks volumes about the status of the drum kit as an instrument and drummers as musicians and drumming as a musical practice. You can actually learn a lot about, like, how our instrument fits into the broader musical culture Um by looking at some of the stereotypes that underpin those jokes right and then thinking what ideological power they hold mm -hmm. right yeah because um, in every joke there's not maybe a half truth but there is a nugget of something that people might hold to be true even without evidence mm -hmm. uh, an assumption a taken for granted assumption about the status of a of an instrument or or type of music and that was really interesting to me so, and I also thought, you know, maybe the best and most productive strategy to, to get some of my colleagues to shut up about the drummer jokes was to actually like dismantle them systematically right. and right. to, and to therefore kind of rob them of their, of their power, uh, and to, you know, basically, uh, demystify them or, or, or trace the roots of them and show that on the one hand, sure they exist and sure there's a, they make uh, they make sense within a certain kind of logic that that uh, popular music culture and also European classical music culture you know operates within. But the logic doesn't always make sense. <laughs> and right, right. when when you start to like scrutinize those jokes, you sort of start to pick apart the wider logic of you know take for example like music education in university. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you you start to really think, like, why are we as first year students in universities, you know, uh, you know, why is it mandatory to take a to take Harmony 101 and not something like Rhythm 101? Like, right. who made that decision? Right. Where did that yeah. come? <laughs> and <laughs> and what what consequences does, does that have for like how we value different aspects of music? Yeah. I think that's that's sort of fundamental work that hasn't been done often enough uh and the drum kit's a really great way of kind of unpicking some of those yeah discourses and and, and value systems that should be criticized should be right. scrutinized right um i i you you kind of blew my mind with um your uh discussion of um the history of of drumming and drummers and drums as they relate to the slave trade oh yeah in early North America, um, because, you know, in, in general terms, uh, drums and drummers have been looked down upon, 
um, by the rest of the musical world. And until I read this part of your book, it did not dawn on me that um, that disdain has its roots at least partially in the slave trade and in racism because uh, the drums were basically the only instrument that uh, slaves were allowed to have if, if they were allowed to have any. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the fact that uh, the drums were associated with this group of people that were seen by, uh, you know, the ruling class as subhuman like not not just stupid not just uneducated not just unsophisticated like drummers are believed to be today but subhuman so like that um that phenomena of of you know associating the drums with with this lower class of person this lower culture um according to your book and i think it's absolutely true just imbued uh, you know, society's view towards drums and drumming, no matter how high class it got, no matter, you know, whether drums made it into Carnegie Hall, like they still carried this stigma of being associated with, uh, <laughs> with black people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So with it, it's wrapped up in the slave trade on the one hand. And also I think, um, as the book kind of goes on to describe it's, the association of drums and cymbals with military conquest on the other, right? right, right and right. with sort of the more brutal aspects of human culture. And, you know, this is at the same time that, that that sort of Western canon of European classical music is being formed, right? Mm-hmm. It, it matters who's in power when those <laughs> narratives of history start to start to come together. Yeah. And it's not an accident that, you know, say, uh, that, that it's not an accident that, uh, that those assumptions about percussion as an instrument, as a low-status instrument, form at the same time when European imperial power is at its very height, mm-hmm. right? There's obviously, uh, you know, those history books are, are being written by, by people who will portray European concert repertoire as the apex of human achievement. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and and also in the mid nineteenth century, you have things like the the theory of Darwin's theory of evolution, you know, mm-hmm. being published for the first time, and very dangerous leaps being made between talking about how natural selection works to this kind of social Darwinism, which there's much less evidence for, highly speculative. It's making an analogy that very quickly breaks down where we suddenly think about music as being something which operates by the same rules as biological natural selection and evolves up to right. an apex when actually music doesn't work like that at all. Right, right. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's just flawed logic, but at the same time, that's the logic that predominated in the 19th century. And by the end of the 19th century, when you start to have things like the music appreciation movement develop and people start to write books about, you know, how to, um, how to elevate yourself by listening to quote unquote good music and avoiding the quote unquote bad stuff. You know, this is, you know, this is all tied up in, in, I think what, what ends up being reproduced in, in drummer jokes and, and creating uh, this this culture where where the drum kit was was always going to be 
represented as a low status, low value instrument. Right, yeah. right. And and just to illustrate to people that that you're you know this is not just an idea you came up with. Your I mean, first of all, your book is is you know exhaustively referenced. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, early on, there was this uh, quote from uh, Benjamin Latrobe who yeah. was a, a traveling architect and engineer. Uh, and I guess, was this a journal entry of his from Congo Square? Yeah, exactly. He kept okay. a regular journal. Right. So there's this this journal entry where he's he's at Congo Square in New Orleans um, in, what, 1886. Uh, and he says, uh, I found a crowd of five or 600 persons assembled in an open space or public square. All those who were engaged in the business seemed to be blacks, an old man sat astride of a cylindrical drum about a foot in diameter and beat it with incredible quickness with the edge of his hand and fingers. They made an incredible noise and most of the circles contained the same sort of dances. The allowed amusements of Sunday have, it seems, perpetuated here those of Africa among its former inhabitants. I have never seen anything more brutally savage and at the same time dull and stupid than this whole exhibition. <laughs> yeah. So when I first read that, you know, I, I, I laughed like I just did because, you know, just the, the last sentence is like the drums are brutally savage and stupid, <laughs> Yeah. you know, which, you know, sums up the attitude towards it. But, you know, I thought about it for a few more seconds and I was like, this this guy is just saying that the drums are a, a subhuman activity. Um, yeah, that's right. And it's it's very troubling to go back to a lot of the of, of writing about um drums and music more broadly in the 19th century because it's, you know, just absolutely fraught with these incredibly racist attitudes. Uh, and I think that, again, in the same way that when you're looking for, like, the the roots of something that's that might be an innocuous joke on the one hand or, like, a fundamental assumption that, we're, that we make about musical aesthetics on the other, mm -hmm. like, what music deserves, for instance, like state support or not. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it's, you got to go back to these sources. And so, uh, you know, I, I wasn't just reading, you know, history books that were produced in, you know, the late 20th century to get this. I was going back to music history textbooks that were being written in the 1800s and right. trying to figure out like how they made sense of, you know, describing the history of music in in that century and yeah there's so much problematic stuff but uh I, I think it's really important to go back to those original sources in in order to questionize them in order to like really shine a light upon them and say like guess what this doesn't make sense for all of these for reasons a b and c and right. and then trying to present a kind of alternative hopefully more accurate history of yeah. what was happening yeah right. so yeah i had to read you know, to uh, to produce the book, you know, around 300 different sources, uh, a few more than that, uh, to put this narrative together. So, as you say, yeah, it, it's exactly right that this isn't just my my personal pet theory. This is, you know, I'm, I'm trying as much as possible to basically base every argument that I make on, you know, evidence. <laughs> go 
go from these sort of origins to um, you know the early 20th century uh, with drummers in you know the theater and vaudeville um, and and describing how you know dis- despite the fact that these drummers um, you know were obviously not uh, black people or slaves or former slaves in Congo Square, but these were otherwise, uh, you know, members of regular society in good standing who were just as trained on their instrument as any other musicians. Um, how how drummers in theaters uh, were paid less than other musicians, um, and uh, how what was it in um, uh john pearl spears memoir oh yeah 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 um he talked about he was he was a member of the british union the musicians union um so and he talked about this difference in pay as a as a traveling drummer with um with theater shows and that you know that blew my mind there was also a a reference to how even back then musicals or theater shows would travel with a drummer they would hire everyone else locally but yeah travel with a drummer because the drummer knew the show and yeah so so you know there's another another um uh point at which you know we're, we're gonna pay you less than all the musicians but you, like you're the most important <laughs> member of this team yeah exactly and it, the the slight distinction to make there is that um in terms of that pay agreement this was something that was uh established in the uk in in 1907, after there was a big music hall strike where musicians across the board playing these theaters were demanding better wages, better working com- conditions. A lot of the theaters that they were working in were fire hazards. So um, you know, this is actually one of the few examples where when musicians actually got themselves organized enough to go on strike, not only did they do that, but they also produced a positive outcome from that. Mm-hmm. So they, they got this agreement that, uh, that uh, improved their wages. Um, but what's amazing is that Within that agreement, it's very explicit that drummers were to be paid less. So that was happening in the UK on the one hand, right. because it was seen drumming was seen as a particular form of unskilled labor, despite the fact that there's lots of counter evidence to suggest that the drummer was absolutely central, if not the most important member in many of these touring um, shows. Right. Uh, and and uh, something very similar was happening in the United States. So um, I put that uh, those quotes from uh, the drummer you mentioned, John Pearl Spears, you know, um, in the same chapter as uh, the the part that describes the conditions in the UK. But uh, John Pearl Spears was actually based in Massachusetts. Oh, um, right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. But, I, but I mean, the same thing was happening in the United States. Right. Um, that was a, a really interesting source to discover. I was trying to, at one point, basically, locate or purchase a copy of every book ever written about the drum kit. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> and, and through doing that, uh, I came across uh, a website that sold secondhand books. And there was this book I hadn't come across before. And it was written by this fellow, John Pearl Spears. And it said, you know, uh, a life of you know some, something like 50 years as a drummer. Um, and it was in Massachusetts, and I managed to convince my university that I was working for at the time to, to purchase a copy of this. And what it turned out to be was this unpublished manuscript that was hmm. like 400 pages long. Wow. <laughs> it was incredible. Typewritten, <laughs> you know, by, you know, this guy who had worked in, uh, in New England as a drummer 
a vaudeville player, drum teacher in, in the early 20th century. And he had taken like photographs of the bands that he was in and also like the students that he taught and glued them into the pages of this, <laughs> oh, wow. of this manuscript. But then it never ended up getting published. So it's now actually held in the special collections uh, part of the library at the University of Edinburgh. Um, and you can go and take it out with some gloves and uh, <laughs> and turn the pages of this thing. But you know, he, he wrote incredibly detailed accounts of what it was like to be a trap drummer and a vaudeville drummer at the turn of the century. Um, so accounts of what it was like as, you know, as a form of work, as you know, what, what being a working drummer in those days was like. Right. Also, um, you know, some of the stereotypes and challenges that he encountered, which would resonate with, you know, amazingly with many experiences of 21st century drummers. Totally. I, I remember he didn't he write something about how, you know, his his friends who were non musicians had this attitude of like, oh, you're a, you're a drummer. What do you do all day? Like, it must be must be nice to just, you know, just do nothing all day and then play for an hour a night. Um, and, and you know, he, he talked about how, like, you know, I have to buy like 40 instruments and I have to learn how to play them all. And, you know, and like, not only that, I have to learn how to like haul them, right? <laughs> haul those, uh, you know, drums and, and percussion from gig to gig. And this is an era before cars. Man. Right. Right. Wasn't there some <laughs> anecdote about him like like hauling his drums three miles from the train to the theater and like hiring some local kids to drag his drums on a sled exactly. through the snow <laughs> like man we, oh, think just... we have it bad now god man right that yeah. yeah i mean my my worst load-in of my career doesn't even doesn't even compare <laughs> oh absolutely so when, when i when i find stories like that i'm you know i, I collect them right and um and if you collect enough of them you can sort of piece together the kind of evolution of of what the profession of drumming looks like, you know, over the decades and 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 even over the centuries. Right, wow. right. Um, I was uh, reading ahead. Um, I don't remember exactly which chapter it was in, but um, just talking about the um, the unique way that drummers seem to hang and stick together um, yeah. over the over the years and over the decades, um, and uh, I was this this part I was reading that that reminded me of that was uh, when you were discussing uh, Bernard Purdy forming a collective in New York right? City because like all the drummers doing session work were everybody was just hauling their kits all over the place and and Purdy kind of spearheaded this effort to just install house kits in every studio. Yeah, and not only that though, he did it in a very clever clever way where basically. In New York City, he had this collective of um, of session drummers, which included uh, Panama Francis, who's like a really pivotal um, uh, early rhythm and blues drummer. Cozy Cole, who mm -hmm. uh, some people in the um, some listeners might know. Lots of lots of session musicians in New York. Um, so they they had this agreement where they would uh, get thirty two different drum kits that they put in recording studios around the. Uh, city and the bass drums would stay in these recording studios, but then all the rest of the gear was kept in a truck so that the record co company had to order those items for every date that they did. So sort of everyone got paid, you know, it was uh, right. you know, really <laughs> what it was about ensuring was that, was that that work was being valued, that, uh, that the labor of drummers could be minimized while the pay, uh, you know, was, uh, was high. 
And so you find these different kind of like, yeah, collective efforts amongst drummers um, in different places to, to sort of uh, basically establish drumming as a form of specialized work. But of right. course, that also coheres drummers as a, as a social group and as a culture where they yeah. have one another's backs. It's it's not an exact uh, analogy, but it reminded me of um, this drummer John Root in Nashville, who we've interviewed on the show. Um, and you know, there are just dozens of of clubs on uh, Lower Broadway in Nashville. Um, and I don't know, maybe five or ten years ago, this this Nashville drummer John Root kind of took it upon himself to. Uh, coordinate with, I believe it was Mapex at the time, and all of the different clubs and all of the drummers who played in those clubs, and he got uh, drum sets, he just got house drum sets installed on every stage on Lower Broadway. Yeah. Um, so not only, not only uh, you know, saved his fellow drummers a ton of, uh, uh, you know, hauling labor, but created like a side hustle for himself um, maintaining all of these drum sets, you know, making sure the cymbal felts are on and the heads are new and, yeah. and all that. It, it like, I, I read that thing about Purdy and I was like, it's John Root. It's John Root in Nashville. It's, yeah. <laughs> there, there's a history of drummers being resourceful. And I think that, you know, that's one of my hopes for the, the book, I guess, is for, you know, a contemporary drummer to, to read it and find stuff from across history that resonates with their current experience. Right. You know? Right. Think like, there's actually something really fundamental about the experiences that I'm having that, you know, that all drummers have these days that, that, that goes way back. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that kind of pulls together a, a collective sense of identity, something mm -hmm. that you can kind of be, take a certain amount of pride in belonging to this, you know, this club, this culture of working drummers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like I said, I've been, I've been kind of skipping around the book. Um, and I know one aspect of the book that, that, um, is really important is, is something that I haven't really gotten into with it yet, which is, um, the, the implications of the drum set and the evolution of the drum set, um, in, in music and the development of, of different musical genres and, and different groups or different, you know, I mean, you, you cover everything from specific groups to eras to, I think, recording techniques. Um, so, uh, what are, what are some examples, um, of, of that dynamic in the history of the drum set? Yeah, sure thing. Um, I think one of the most surprising things to me initially was going back to, for example, the birth of jazz, you know, which when I was taught jazz history, you know, we're taught about the usually the great canonical improvising soloists on brass instruments. You know, so, you know, Louis Armstrong or Vic Spiderbeck or, you know, Sidney Bechet, all right. these uh, who, of course, play clarinet. But, you know, the emphasis is on these amazing improvisers who were able to do, you know, extremely innovative solos over a particular set of chord changes. And I always thought, you know, that was amazing. And the role of the drummer was to just kind of like be there in the background, <laughs> you know, keeping time. Right. right. Uh, but what was fascinating to me going back to the press coverage of jazz, um, you know, from 1918, you know, up to say 1925. So in it's very early years was just how central everyone reviewing you know, jazz concerts thought the drummer was. Mm -hmm. And that was partly because they had never seen this instrument before. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, yeah. it was this thing that was 
you know, had suddenly appeared on the stage and jazz bands were famously written about in their early years as being really noisy bands. Um, so that could be because some of the soloists were improvising in such a way that um, their instruments would imitate the sounds of animals at that time or, <laughs> you know, like, you know, make, getting their instruments to produce all kinds of like wacky effects. But drummers also had a lot to do with that. So they would literally have like motor horns and klaxons and cowbells, which we now think of, you know, the cowbell as being, you know, uh, a, a, a non-controversial part of the element of the, of the <laughs> right. drum kit, right? <laughs> Ever since Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we wouldn't think of that as, a, as an unusual instrument per se. It's now become, you know, so widespread. But in 1918, you know, the fact that you were bringing that onto a stage and playing it and making music with it, and and then also these other things which have now fallen by the wayside, like these these carvings, which were actually like bolted onto the you know rim of a bass drum. You know, these are uh, completely insane <laughs> things to be playing uh, at, at that point in time, and people had never seen it before. And so when you read reception in the press about like when people are trying to figure out like what is jazz they often make mention of this crazy instrument and associate that as being like what separates a jazz band from a normal band. It's the drum kit above right. all things, or that's what epitomizes this new twist in music. Um, so when the uh, when jazz bands first start to tour the world, say to, to France and Australia and Germany, um, what's often remarked upon is that like, Basically, the, the thing that makes these bands special, you know, okay, they're brass players doing interesting things, but really, the jazz part is synonymous with the drum kit as an instrument. If you mm -hmm. don't have a drum kit, it's not a jazz band, <laughs> right? So wow. that's super interesting, and that's something I was never taught uh, <laughs> at right. school. Right. right. And, and I mean, people, you know, there's, there's an ongoing debate about what is jazz. Um, yeah. and it's, it's fascinating to hear that, like, you know, one of the, one of the early, uh, requirements for what is jazz is, does it have a drum set? And it's consistent from country to country. Like this yeah. is what people remark upon. Um, but then you can also think, you know, with, you know, we sort of fast forward to say the birth of rock and roll, uh, you know, at that time in the 1950s, Rock and roll was just one of several possible names for this new dance music um, that was that was happening. And what, what it was equally referred to was uh, the big beat or beat music mm. uh, in the early 1960s. All of those groups in the British invasion, they were beat groups. The reason why the Beatles are called the Beatles is, you know, it's not an accident. Right. It's yeah, because yeah. they were br part of this beat scene. And again, all the emphasis is really on the hammering of these drums throughout, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and that's, again, something that, you know, we, we no longer tend to think of. But when you go back to press coverage at the time, it was absolutely taken for granted that, like, that was the core element, right? Mm -hmm. um, that it was the insistent pounding beat that separated uh, what music that came from before from this new music that started to take over the, the teenage imagination. Um, you can think again to like the birth of hip hop, you know, on, on the one hand, for sure you have like MCs toasting and rapping and improvising, but you know, 
at these block parties in the Bronx in 1973, when pioneers like DJ Cool Herc are, you know, starting to create the core components of this new music, what is really happening, according to Cool Herc and African Bombada and Grandmaster Flash and other DJs who were um, you know, throwing these block parties at the time, was that they would play a standard DJ set. And then they began to notice that the crowds really started to go wild whenever there was like a, a drum solo in the break, right? Uh, of <laughs> right, these right. songs. And so what happened, what started making these, these dance parties in the Bronx interesting and different from other types of parties uh, was that the DJs would grab two copies of the same record and they would queue up the drum break, right, on both turntables. Mm -hmm. And they would just play the drum break, however long it lasted for, 30 seconds, and then switch the fader over to the other turntable and play the same drum break and extend it and keep that going. And so there's no other instrument that I can think of that is present for all of these massively important shifts in music history, right? Yeah. Uh, like the drum kit is there from the beginning of the 20th century. And it's not just there. It's not just a bystander. It's central, right? Right. It's absolutely central to these new genres being created. And you can kind of think of it, um, you know, say in terms of uh, if you make an analogy to like architecture, for instance, mm -hmm. the drums are like the foundations of the house, right? right. So what you notice is like what's built on top, <laughs> right. uh, you know, like all the ornamentations or, you know, uh, you know, or of a of a building or a structure and the aspects of the de design but actually like none of that is possible if you have you know the same sort of layout and foundation of of those buildings the drums are like that everything else is sort of like gravy essentially right that gets on top but those genres would never have even um began to coalesce if not for these differences in the way that the drums were used and the drums were being treated you could make the same argument for bebop for funk Right. Uh, for disco, for electronic dance music. You know. And that's a particularly apt analogy because in, in architecture, you know, the architect uh, gets so much of the glory and the credit as the artist, as the visionary. And, and, you know, of course, that's all true and they're deserving of that. But very little attention is paid to the skill and craftsmanship that goes into whoever built the foundation. <laughs> yeah. Know? And I you know, I know nothing about architecture. I'm assuming that architects kind of also design the foundation. But in terms of that blue collar workman like, um, you know, craft that that uh, we like to think of of drumming as, um, yeah, it like like you said, all of the you know everything that everybody sees is built atop. Um, yeah, you know, I think that's the main you're... point to make in that analogy is that the foundation is below the ground, right? <laughs> it's the part that you don't see and the part that people don't talk about. But actually, without it, <laughs> right. nothing changes, right? right. Going back to the Beatles, um, one of the one of the things I read about uh, Ringo was was your discussion of how, you know, the phenomenon of the Beatles and the popularity of Ringo, like the the role that that played in, um, you know, drum merchandising and oh, yeah. the uh, the the um, the concept of endorsements. 
Um, and there was a really cool story about about the the Ludwig logo on Ringo's bass drum. Tell yeah. that tell that story about how he bought that kit. Well, basically, Ringo, like many musicians in the UK, were obsessed with uh, American instruments, and this mm-hmm. was partly a result of um, restrictions that were in place after World War II, where uh, in terms of taxation, musical instruments were considered as luxury items. So they were very highly taxed, and it meant that they, you know, it was very expensive, especially imported instruments from the United States. And because um, groups like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles were all uh, obsessed with rhythm and blues uh, pioneers who came from the United States, they were also obsessed with the instruments they played and and any American instrument by extension. So Ludwig in his very early days was playing a British made premier kit, still a very nice drum kit. Um, Ringo was Ringo was. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I think actually their very first album, you're hearing Ringo play that premier kit rather than the famous Ludwig kit that everyone huh. knows for. Right. Um, but uh, in 1962 or 1963, just as Beatlemania is starting to take off in the UK, but crucially predating their first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show in February 1964, um, Ringo's, uh, well, the Beatles manager, um, uh, Brian Epstein, starts to equip the, the Beatles with uh, better instruments. And so uh, Ringo goes to this a shop called Drum City in, in London, and he sees this, you know, now completely iconic uh, Black Oyster Pearl Ludwig kit. Right. And um, and they're looking to get the, the band's logo uh, put onto the front of the bass drum head. And uh, the shop offered to take the Ludwig logo off of that drum head. But Ringo it was said, just no. a sticker, right? Exactly, it was just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he said, no, you have to keep it on, right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's yeah, I want the world to know. I exactly. got my Ludwig kit, right. <laughs> but I'm successful enough to own an American instrument. Like this right. was quite an important status symbol at the time. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, leaves that Ludwig sticker on it. And of course the rest is history. It's, it was really interesting to me, you know, there's so much, um, you know, mythology and, you know, uh, tall tales told about the Beatles and their impact. You kind of wonder like, God, is that actually true? Mm-hmm. But then, but then to read the accounts of drum manufacturers and not just Ludwig, but also Gretsch and like other um, you know, key manufacturers of, of drum kits in the early 1960s, when the Beatles hit Ed Sullivan, they suddenly have to double their workforce and, yeah. start, and can't expand their factories quick enough. So they have to start making drums 24 hours a day you know, to, to meet demand, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the demand exploded with that amount of speed, right? That, that was the only way that they were able to cope. And and Ludwig uh, tells that story, but you know other drum manufacturers do as well. So right. it's it's kind of incredible. Um, and of course, Ludwig uh, is able to um, to benefit from that uh, um, that impact most of all because they didn't take the sticker off. Right. <laughs> and so that's what that's what uh, TV viewing audiences of the Sullivan Show see. You know, if they're paying attention, is that yeah. Ludwig logo? That blew my mind because, you know, for for uh, most drummers, um, you, you know, having having the logo on the front of the bass drum head is just, you know, standard. Like I, I thought twas ever thus. Um, but when I read that, I, I kind of thought like, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not really common in pictures or video prior to Ringo 
to see the logo on the front head. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ringo tells that story and like I, you know, kind of takes credit for the entire phenomenon. But I mean, it <laughs> it it holds true. Like there was, you know, before Ringo, you didn't see it much, and then after Ringo, it was like logos everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, That's, it's it's very interesting, and you also see. Um, the drum export business really take off in, in the 1960s, whereas previously um, a lot of American manufacturers sort of, you know, saw exports as kind of a secondary thing. And these are now global brands. We kind of assume that they've always been such. Um, but that whole globalization of the of drum kit manufacturing is, as an industry is really a, like a post-60s phenomenon, um, right. at least according to the company histories uh, that are written by um, folk like Rob Cook. I don't know if you've had Rob on your show, but he's written a you know several amazing and very authoritative um, histories of Slingerland and Ludwig and, yeah, and all yeah. sorts. Yeah. Um, I know you uh, you spend a section of the book talking about um, about symbol making and, and about Zildjian symbols. Sure. It, it, was there a, a similar sort of phenomenon or, or evolution um, uh, in in symbol making? I mean, it, I, I would imagine that that Ringo and that whole phenomenon had an effect on the symbol world. <laughs> you know, not just the yeah, world. absolutely, um, and certainly like heavy players that come into you know. Uh, force, you know, in the second half of the 1960s, Carmen Apice and Keith Moon and John Bonham, um, you know, created men for heavier symbols right. uh, that don't break so easily or that, you know, aren't, aren't, you know, can withstand more force and heavier playing. Um, so, but that's actually, you know, uh, the interaction between drummers and manufacturers is, is very long standing. So, you know, when Zildjian, um, when, when uh, the Zildjian family starts manufacturing symbols in the United States um, in the 1930s, they very quickly, like, you know, start to ask drummers. They're based in Quincy, Massachusetts, but you know, they'll they'll make trips to New York City and and try and discuss with drummers what what do they need. And so Gene Krupa, for instance, had a close relationship with both Zildjian and with Slingerland, and by the accounts of those companies, um, you know, had quite an influence in terms of the design. Mm -hmm. uh, of, you know, what types of symbols were being made, what was appropriate to swing music in that time. Um, and, you know, you could make a, the argument that, and many have, that, that Krupa is really the most important, uh, not, not just the most important drummer of the first half of the 20th century in terms of visibility, influence, and impact, but also, you know, the most important designer <laughs> in, of, of, of kits in terms of you know, making the transition from early drum kits uh, to what we now think of as like a modern drum kit where you have no or, or, you know, very few kind of percussion accessories, separate tension rack tom, separate tension floor tom. Um, and, you know, it's basically something that we, we would now recognize as being like not too dissimilar from a modern day drum kit. That's right. really, you know, that look starts in 1936 uh, and it comes directly out of a collaboration between Slingerland and and Krupa when they when he helps them redesign their Radio King series. Yeah, wow, yeah. So that's so cool. So that interaction, you could tell the same story with uh, with Gretsch drums in the 1940s mm -hmm. and bebop drummers visiting the factory, um, um, members of the Gretsch company, you know, going to gigs, maintaining very close relationships with those drummers. Uh, who are saying like, listen, we got to carry these drums on the subway in Manhattan. Like how yeah. do we do that? make them smaller? <laughs> and so like, 
you know, the, the idea of bop kits, you know, gradually, you know, the, the bass drums in particular decreasing in size through the 1940s. You know, this is a dialogue that happens between, you know, Gretsch and jet bebop drummers of that period. Right. And so I was going to, Oh, sorry, sorry go, go ahead. I, I was going to ask if, if, um, you know, that, that partnership between players and, and manufacturers, um, exists as, as tightly, um, in, in other instruments as it does in the drums. And I'm sure in some ways it does, but what you just, what you just mentioned, like drummers taking their drums on the subway and, and talking to their manufacturers about that, like that doesn't exist in the trumpet world or the guitar world. It's, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's something specific to us. Absolutely. And I think that's because the drum kit is really this, this interesting assemblage of multiple individual percussion instruments. Right. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we do have a rough idea of like what constitutes a standard drum kit, but there's a lot of customization that can occur within that. Yeah. Unlike, say, a trumpet, right, where you can choose your mouthpiece, you can choose the trumpet. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, trumpet players aren't constantly trying to think of ways to make their trumpet smaller and more portable, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> or to make it more efficient. So, you know, uh, there isn't as much of a close dialogue between instruments that uh, kind of came of age in earlier centuries versus the drum kit, which you can very much see as like this late 19th, early 20th century instrument, which continues to evolve over the course of the 20th century. Right. I mean, it, it came of age and evolved like during the Industrial Revolution. Um, it, it might it, I mean, it might be the only instrument that that uh, whose whose evolution kind of um, spanned the the breadth of the industrial revolution um yeah because every instrument evolved i mean especially the you know the guitar the you know piano into keyboard etc um but um but none know. of them cover this super fascinating 150 year scope that the drum kit seems to and what's so interesting about that is that you can really use the drum kit to tell a history of the world in 150 years yeah in a way that like you, you can't with the electric guitar. So right. much cool stuff has already happened by the time the electric guitar, you know, first <laughs> makes its way into the public world. Yeah, that's um, half our story. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so so I think, like, part of the real strength of the drum kit as a, as a focal point for a narrative is that, like, it's, it's action-packed. You know, you can, you can look at so many massive changes in, in global history and really the shaping of the modern world itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, from the perspective of the kit, which, you know, has been there for that length of time. Right. So the, you know, the, the latest um, sort of development or evolution in uh, in the drum set is uh, the lack of a human. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I don't know if you if you cover this at all in your book, but um, reading reading parts of it kind of led me to wonder um, how how does the lack of a human drummer in modern music um, sort of change the way that we absorb it or the way that we think about it or the role that that music might play culturally? Um, it's kind of a big, weird <laughs> question. Yeah. Um, but well, it's something that's at the forefront of my mind. Just, you know, I, I can see um, just uh, drum programming becoming more and more prevalent and, and it, it's, it fascinates me and scares me. And um, so I'm just wondering how you see this as someone who has taken the long view of, yeah. um, of our role in music and in culture. Well, I think that 
one way of answering that is, you know, thinking about different attempts to replace the drummer mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, over time. And maybe drum machines, analog drum machines are, you know, uh, the most obvious early attempt at that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of come into force, uh, you know, often built into organs. Um, so like a lot of people would say the first commercially viable drum machine is, uh, was made by an organ company called Wurlitzer, famous Wurlitzer organs. And they had this machine called the Sideman, which they released in 1959, which mm-hmm. was a drum machine. It mm-hmm. was as large as a suitcase that you would have to check into, you know, uh, a flight. But, right. uh, but it was there to uh, act as the sideman to the organist. And drum machines were also commonly built directly into organs. And throughout the 60s, you then start to have um, isolated drum machines used as, you know, as a kind of practice tool for guitarists um, or, or other instrumentalists. But what's interesting is that people begin to really like the sounds of those drum machines. And so they start creeping their way into, into records as, as this kind of new sound by the end of the 1960s and into the 1970s. Um, and, you know, at, at, at a certain point, you know, begin to threaten potentially the gig of, of a session drummer coming into, right. you know, to make those sounds. Um, so whether that's like an analog drum machine pumping up beats that are programmed or drum samples where they're taking particular breaks from vinyl and then, um, you know, looping those and, and creating samples, those things start to, uh, you know, really make their way quite deeply into the technology of the recording studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that increasingly with digital audio workstations where suddenly, you know, you've got, you know, um, drums being one of the first, The first sort of digital plug-in tools that you can automatically insert. But what's interesting about that is that while it may remove like the acoustic drum kit and live drummers from certain opportunities in in the recording studio, what they end up doing, and the argument I make in the book is they they don't marginalize the drummer. They actually like move it increasingly towards the center of all record production. So it's it's not that the drum kit becomes less important. It's that actually now all musicians, uh, you know, whether you're a drummer or a guitar player or an engineer, have to think like drummers hmm. as a core part of their skill set in order to be considered a competent musician. Right? Hmm. Yeah. It's now become so fundamental to uh, making a successful contemporary recording that everyone has to understand that. In the 1950s, that wasn't how it operated in the recording studio. But nowadays it's widely acknowledged that like the beat is absolutely central and you have to get it right, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And the fact that there's such a lucrative industry of software, drum programming, drum sampling, um, you know, to, to try and on the one hand, get rid of the drummers. The fact that like the drums are the most complicated thing to record (laughs) (laughs) acoustically. Um, They're the most expensive. And so, people are wanting to make savings, but they're also absolutely fundamental. You can't get rid of them. Right. So suddenly there's this whole ancillary industry of people trying to like create drum programming software or drum replacement software and, and so on and so forth. But that's not, to, that's not in any way undermining the importance of, um, of the drum kit drumming and drummers. It's emphasizing it. Right. You know, right. As far and as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And, and, you know, many, many drummers have, um, 
incorporated this into their income, if not switched to it entirely. I mean, you see whether they're huge names or, um, or just people kind of doing it on their own drummers are, are charging money to create libraries of, uh, programmable loops and sounds and, and, and what have you. So, um, while they, they may not be, you know, in the studio part of the process, uh, the way they, they used to be more commonly, they're still, like you said, um, just absolutely essential. Um, because even if you're, even if you're going to end up with a program beat, starting with a human is going to yield better results. A hundred percent. And if you don't have a human, you better, you know, think like a human drummer in order to create a compelling drum part for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, well, man, we've like, we've just scratched the surface of this book. It's, it's, it covers so much. Uh, and I really encourage everyone to, to check it out. Um, tell people where they can get this book. Okay. So they can, you can get this book, um, at most online stores or your local independent bookshop. It's, it's widely distributed. So they might not have a copy, uh, in, in your bookshop at the moment, but it should be very easy to order one. Um, but the cheapest way to uh, get the book is to actually go to the publisher, which is Oxford University Press, and their website, if you go to oup.com slash academic, then you can um, search up uh, my name, which is Matt Brennan, and the book is called Kick It, A Social History of the Drum Kit. And then if you do order it through that oup.com slash academic website, there's a promo code that I have, which I'm allowed to share with uh, listeners of your podcast. Yeah. And if you use this promo code, yeah, uh, it's in all caps, A-A-F-L-Y-G-6, and you apply that discount code to, uh, to the order at the OUP website, then it will knock off 30% off of the retail price. Um, and that's uh, by far the the most economical way to, to order the book. So I encourage uh, folk to do that. And we had also talked about possibly giving away a copy of the book on this show. Yeah, I think uh, once this episode drops, um, we'll, we'll post it on Instagram and Facebook like we always do. And anyone who shares uh, our post on Instagram or Facebook and tags us will be entered to win a free copy. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Is this book available... Um, in digital form for Kindle or anything, or is it only hard yeah, copy? It, it's available as an ebook and as a paperback book. Um, oh, great. Yeah. Cool. So, again, you should be able to order. You could, you could get it from places like Amazon, um, or any other, you know, big online retailer that sells books. Right. Um, but, uh, but I think that that discount code would work for both the paperback and the electronic version. So, um, cool. so the best savings are to go to, uh, the less well-known, but, uh, bargain filled OUP.com slash academic. <laughs> right on, right on. And I think the, the, the copy that we're giving away is going to be a hard copy. Um, which it, I, I like having this hard copy because there's so many pictures, um, uh, that are just really illuminating and cool, especially the super old ones. Um, uh, so, you know, just being able to kind of flip the pages and, and interact with those pictures in that way is, is, is cool. Of course yeah. the drummer the, <laughs> can't have a book about drummers without pictures. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ending, ending with a drummer joke. Perfect. That's right. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me, man. I really appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely, man. This is really uh, an, an amazing book, uh, a cool 
really cool concept and and like i said just uh really masterfully and exhaustively researched and and referenced uh and and just super uh illuminating so everyone check it out matt thanks so much for talking man it was great it was great chatting about uh our little our little corner of uh musical culture here it's been a pleasure Thanks to Matt for that talk and for this book. Like we said, you can enter to win a free copy by reposting our Facebook and Instagram posts for this episode and tagging us. Thanks to Matt and to Oxford University Press for that giveaway. Whether you enter to win or not, I highly recommend checking this book out. Once again, go to oup.com academic. Search Matt Brennan or Kick It and use the promo code all caps A A F L Y G 6 for 30% off this book. Matthew Krauss is back with you next week. Until then, thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.